Hi, everyone. It's Tom here. I just want to take a moment at the top of the episode to remind you that we have a book coming out. And very excitingly, I don't need to give you a date because I can give you a day because it's coming out on Tuesday. So we are very excited about this. The book is called The Future We Choose. It's available to pre-order now. And at the beginning of each episode for the last few weeks, I have been reading a quote from a friend who has had an advanced copy of the book and has read it and has liked it and has supported it. But this being the last time before launch, we're going to do something different. We have quite a list of these people. And together with my friends, Christiana and Paul and Clay, who does the production that you probably know as well, we're just going to read you the list. This is the list of people who have endorsed the book so far. So yes. far. So far. Correct. So far. So yeah. far. Okay, here we go. And there's 29, so we're going to try to do it as fast as possible. Right. Christiana, you go first. Okay, here we go. Al Gore. Anne Hidalgo. Arnold Schwarzenegger. Ban Ki-moon. Ben Van Burden. Bertrand Picard. Bill McKibben. Chris, Chris Anders- Anderson. Sorry. Who who do I uh, do I follow Clay? Who do I follow? You, no, you, you follow me, Christiana. Follow, yeah, you follow I Tom. I follow Tom. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so start again, David Miliband. No, you said Chris Anders. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so then you say David Miliband, who's the next one. Okay. David Miliband. Ed Miliband. Ellie Golding. Giselle Bunchen. Jane Goodall. Jennifer Morgan. Jesper Broden. Julian Hector. Lisa Jackson. Klaus Schwab. Mark Ruffalo. Michael Mann. Naomi Klein. Nicholas Stern. Oliver Beta. Richard Branson. Stella McCartney. Tim Smith. Wanjira Matai. William Haig. Leonardo DiCaprio. And the one and only Yuval Noah Harari. So we are pretty overwhelmed that these remarkable human beings have been so kind as to provide us with uh, warm words and support of the book. Uh, We are very grateful to all of you. And we hope very much that this group of distinguished individuals encourages you that reading this book is something that is worth your time. So it's coming out on Tuesday. There'll be a lot more about it. Last chance to pre-order. Here's the episode. And welcome to Outrage and Optimism. My name's Tom Rivet-Karnak. I'm Christiana Figueres. And I'm Paul Dickinson. Today, we discuss recent record high temperatures in Antarctica, and we look ahead to the big year on climate unfolding in the US. Plus, we speak to former Secretary of State John Kerry. Thanks for being here. Christiana, you're back. Oh my gosh, I'm barely back, you guys. I just walked into my uh, flat in Costa Rica, a 30-hour trip back from the Antarctic. So yes, I am back, barely so, but I'm here. Welcome back, Christiana, welcome back. Thank you. I have only the dimmest sense of the lengths one has to go through to get to Antarctica. How long how long does it how long's the boat ride? It must be a boat ride, right? It is definitely good <laughs> job, Tom. <laughs> 
They haven't, they haven't built a bridge yet, Tom. They're, they're thinking about a bridge from Argentina, but it's a very long way. <laughs> well, I assume rather than helicopter, actually. Yeah, no, no, no helicopter. Well, you can get there um, two ways, either from Western Antarctica or approaching from Eastern Antarctica. But um, I we approach from Western Antarctica, which means that you go to the very, very, very tip of uh, South America called Tierra del Fuego. Uh, and then from there you board a boat and you cross the dreaded Drake Passage, mm-hmm. uh, and which is a 48-hour crossing. Why is it dreaded? Of, well, because it is the most turbulent waters in the world. Uh, two oceans, in fact, three oceans coming together oh, yeah. and um, producing very, very high waves. On our way out, we were quite blessed to uh, to have a relatively decent uh, Drake passage. And on our way back, um, a little bit more, but um, but still very much within manageable, which is actually quite different, guys, to the previous trip that I did to Antarctica. I know you're all drooling by now um, because last year when we were coming back, we had waves that were anywhere between 12 and 15 meters. Multiply that times three to get feet. Wow. Um, honestly, that was... Uh, the, the waves were crashing up over the captain's bridge. Um, that that was not a trip uh, to to take easily, uh, but this trip was much better. So the Drake Passage was quite doable, uh, both going south as well as coming north. But it is quite a trek to get down to um, way down south. It is the whitest, the coldest, the driest, and the windiest continent on earth. <laughs> It's quite a combination. It is a combination. And and it seems to be a very strange coincidence that, that the woman who brought the world together for the Paris Agreement was in Antarctica when it recorded its hottest temperature on record, which I understand happened while you were there. Yes, and Tom, I hope you're not blaming me for for that. It just sounds <laughs> well, like it you're is a very me. interesting it's kind yeah, of I don't suspicious, know. Christiana. It's it not is like a, obviously I mean you know, I, know. I don't know. <laughs> Everything was fine before you got there. That's the only well, thing I'm saying. Well, actually, there. everything was not well, fine, maybe not fine. Um, before we got there. <laughs> um, but yes, in fact, uh, just two days before we boarded the ship for um, for the Drake Passage, the Argentinian research station La Esperanza recorded the highest ever temperatures uh, in Antarctica, breaking all records. Uh, in fact, it was uh, just two degrees different from the temperature recorded on the same day in Hawaii, just to give you a little comparison there. Uh, And it's, you know, honestly, it's, it's nothing short of tragic. It is honestly tragic. Uh, And what, during our trip there, we of course saw melting uh, left, right, front and center, uh, melting of the, of the ice sheets, melting of the glaciers, the um, the wildlife there is uh, very clearly taking the brunt of this as well. Uh, Adelie penguins that really depend on ice sheet because they feed on krill are diminishing dramatically because there's not enough ice to produce enough algae to produce enough uh, krill that is the basis of food for uh, for these penguins. It's a good reminder that all of these all this wildlife and all you know flora and fauna 
are being affected one way or the other, and they will all have to adapt or, or they will face demise. But we are the only species, we humans are the only species who can actually do something about this. All the penguins in the world, all the whales in the world, all the seals in the world, you know, are really only there um, bearing the brunt of this uh, one way or the other. Uh, we're the only species that can actually, we're the, we're the species that caused it and we're the only species that can do something about it. Mm-hmm. So a huge reminder of responsibility. The krill is so interesting because, I mean, that's, and I remember learning about this years ago, you know, they are a keystone species, actually, aren't they? And for the whole Southern Ocean, the entire ecosystem is fundamentally based on the availability of krill. Yeah. And, you know, the intersections, it's quite remarkable. You look at those webs of the, how wide it spreads in terms of the whale, etc., and the krill that live under the ice really fertilize ecosystems that cover the whole of the southern half of the planet in the way that they work their way into the marine ecosystem. So as that begins to um, change, it's very difficult to predict the other interactions that will be affected by that. So it's one of the most concerning things, I think. Um, amongst many concerning things. It is it is very concerning. And, and you know, what? one thing that hit me now on this trip is how short the food chain is down there. It's basically krill eaten directly by penguins or by whales uh, who then um, eat um, penguins right. or other or, uh, or seals. Um, and, and, and that's it. And the orcas, of course, and, and the leopard seals that um, are predators for, for mammals. But, but that's it. Uh, there is no long chain. Hence, there is much less resilience and flexibility in the food chain. If the bottom of the food chain, i.e. the krills, disappear or go uh, under a certain level uh, to support the balance of life down there, then everything else disappears very quickly because it's very, very short. Yeah. Everything depends just on one step below it on the food chain. Um, and there's just not that many steps yeah. in the food chain. I, I think it's so interesting, Christiana. And I, you know, I mean, obviously, you know, where, where I come from is kind of having learned about those interactions in ecosystems and, and, and short food chains. I remember learning about that years ago. But of course, one of the things that's so interesting about the situation, and you pointed out as well, is the challenge now is to pivot and focus on solutions. So that is all unfolding at the bottom of the world. And for you to be down there personally and witness it at this critical moment and bring that back so we can all partly participate in it is really powerful for us to experience. But we have to shift our attention from this kind of mesmeric melting that's going on to where can we have a difference? Where can we have an impact? And as we've said so many times on this podcast, this is the year. And the, you know, the stakes couldn't be higher, the politics couldn't be more important, and many of these most important things are unfolding. And I would argue that actually the most important thing that's going to happen this year on climate is the US election. Mm, so yeah. if you look back even just a few years ago to the last election between Clinton and Trump, when we were at the primary phase of that, um, of that election, Bernie and Hillary really didn't talk about climate at all. It was still felt to be an issue that didn't resonate with the electorate in the US. 
But now we're in a completely different place. So, you know, you can pick and choose between multiple different um, attributes of the candidates. And, and we're not going to get into a great deal of detail here about that. But it is really interesting to say that one place where they are almost aligned, although with some important differences, but they're aligned in their commitment to dealing with climate, they've all vowed to immediately re-enlist the US in the Paris Agreement to fight climate change. All of them would scrap the Trump rollbacks. They'd all set a firm deadline for moving the country to net zero emissions. Um, so, I mean, that feels to me, okay, there's still an election to win. That feels like an enormous amount of political progress in a few years that the Democrats have really sorted themselves out to identify that this is an election issue and they're going to be on the front foot about it. And, you know, I think we should also give credit here where credit is due Jay Inslee, mm. he is no longer in the running, but he was the first uh, who very clearly put his hand up and he said, my entire agenda is going to be around climate. I will build my economic agenda, my social, my political agenda all around climate. Uh, and I think it was a very important and, and the consequences of that are actually quite heartening. And, you know, there's this this huge, I mean, Jay Inslee, yes, of course, and, and, the, and the candidates, I mean, extreme weather has kind of politicized the world on climate change. You've still got um, what often is kind of called the right wing, although I'm getting less and less confident about the meaning of these terms. Let's call it the sort of deregulation group. You know, this is a whole bunch of existing industries that want to keep things just the way they are. They don't want any kind of regulation. And then you've got people lining up saying, wait, wait a minute, we've got an enormous problem here. We're going to have to regulate this. And, and that's where all those Democratic candidates are. And it's a, it's a strange kind of division. It's between kind of like this laissez-faire, which is a kind of positive economic term. You know, people say the laissez-faire economy is going to do fantastic good. But, you know, you let it completely do what it wants and there's disaster. Whereas there is now, uh, you know, the forces are lining up for control uh, of this pollutant. And I think we have to hope, frankly, that a democratic candidate wins, the United States comes back in, totally. and the global system locks back together and we deal with this problem. And it's, you know, what's interesting now, if you look across the democratic field, you know, so you have candidates like Sanders who are advocating, you know, vast amounts of investment and talking about huge amounts of job creation. You've got more centrist candidates like Klobuchar um, and Joe Biden to a degree who still have ambitious platforms, but they're more muted and they talk about a range of other different benefits. Of course, they all talk about jobs. It kind of, it points to something that I've really missed in the climate debate between different political parties, which is this sort of thoughtful polemic about this is a big challenge. Now, what are we going to do about it? There's different theories of how we get on top of that. And that's a good conversation for us to have. And it's a good choice for the voters to have. It's just heartbreaking that that dialogue is all on one side of the political spectrum, while the other side either totally ignores or just trashes the issue. Mm. And I have to say, it must be heartbreaking for John Kerry to watch what's happening to so much of his legacy under Trump. Well, we will we will speak to him and, and get his views of, uh, of how he's thinking and feeling now. But um, honestly, my, my heart breaks for him because I, you know, cannot erase from my memory how many nights in Paris at three o'clock in the morning uh, we were there uh, trying to close one paragraph or the other paragraph that was still open and still had 
many different views. Um, and at three o'clock in the morning, in walks Secretary John Kerry. And uh, everybody else around the table is basically a second or third level negotiator. And in walks the Secretary of State uh, of, uh, uh, of the United States because he was personally so, so invested in getting uh, a strong and an ambitious agreement. And so, you know, whether it is the decades of work that he put into it before Paris or whether it was the untiring hours that he put in during um, the Paris negotiations. He has, uh, he has really um, been clearly one of the very visible leaders of this issue in the United States and internationally. And what is happening in the United States uh, is just incredibly painful for him. Well, should we should we go to the recording now and we'll listen to the conversation you have with Secretary Kerry, because I think it's amazing. And then we can pick up our discussion about the solutions, as you pointed out, Paul, after that. Let's hear it. Secretary Kerry, what a pleasure. And thank you very much for joining us on Outrage and Optimism. Thank you. Thank you for having me. A a podcast that we have entitled like that because we think actually that we need both the outrage that we have in our hearts and see in the streets and the optimism that we need to carry us forward. So I'll be uh, really interested to hear uh, today where you are, where where you place yourself on that um, gamut between outrage and optimism on on climate change. But before we get there, could I um, ask you something that I've been wondering myself, and that is, yes, we know that despite what I call the dark house, which is a white house without any lights in it, Um, despite the dark house, the fact is that uh, there is so much commitment to decarbonization in the U.S. economy that there is at least a fighting chance that the United States will actually be able to deliver what it had put down in Paris. So, you know, that remains to be seen and, and we'll see when the numbers are in. But the question for me is more of a longer-term question, which is, do you think that the current policy of the federal government is actually putting U.S. industry at a competitive disadvantage with respect to industry in other countries? Absolutely. I I think that the White House, as you call the Dark House, is going backwards. It's... it's, uh, rolling back critical standards that we put in place in President Obama's uh, climate action plan where we were trying to use every front possible to move forward to reduce tailpipe emissions, to deal with uh, coal plants, closing them. I mean, you run the list of those things that would help reduce uh, uh, the greenhouse gases. And and so uh, tragically, because when President Trump, without any legitimate rationale actually lying to the American people, telling them that Paris Agreement placed an undue burden on them because he's so ignorant about it, he doesn't understand that it places no burden on anybody. Everybody assumed their own burden, as you know, because you were there and such Or their own opportunity, in fact. <laughs> everybody wrote, the, correct, everybody wrote their own plan. Yes. And that plan actually is the new energy economy. Mm -hmm. It's the greatest market the world has ever seen. Mm -hmm. It's the biggest set of opportunities. I've met with individual entrepreneurs in the United States who are not being deterred by Trump, who are moving forward, 
but it disadvantages a lot of companies in terms of the attitudes of nations, contracts, possible uh, long-term participation in something. People aren't certain the United States is really serious, so it hurts, yes. And um, the, the Green New Deal has emerged over the past few months or, or, or year as being um, a possibility that is still very controversial, but that is gaining in popularity, at least in some political corners. Um, and I would love to hear your opinion about that, but also your view about whether you think it is ever going to be possible that in the United States acting on climate change could be a bipartisan or a non-partisan issue, such as it is to a certain extent in the United Kingdom? Well, it should be both, obviously. Uh, this, the idiocy of grown people, adults, uh, proving themselves incapable of accepting science and closing their minds and just being ideologically rigid is stunning to me. And, and if, I wish there was a way to hold some of them criminally liable, frankly, for the loss of life. I mean, we have people dying in the United States of America, let alone in other parts of the world, too. But mudslides, fires, floods, storms, droughts, uh, you, you, you run the list of, uh, uh, of what is happening, and, uh, you know, we've lost uh, people, our fellow citizens. And to have a president of the United States who who has been up until recently calling it a Chinese hoax, now for pure political reasons, because obviously he's seeing, oh my gosh, people are really agitating about this. So like Richard Nixon in 1970, when he suddenly embraced the, and we created the Environmental Protection Agency, all of that came out of voting. When people went and voted in 1970 and we kicked seven of the worst 12 votes out of Congress, uh, immediately we passed the Clean Air Act, Safe Drinking Water, Marine Mammal Protection, Coastal Zone Management, and Endangered Species, and we created the Environmental Protection Agency. Nixon grabbed it. He said, wow, this is a voting issue. Trump is suddenly waking up to that, but you can't trust anything that he says or does on it, because at the same time as he puts the rhetoric out there, his administration is rolling back rolling rules, back. Mm. making it more dangerous for people living near coal sludge, uh, rate, you know, the standards. So the bottom line, Christiana, is that this is an extraordinary economic opportunity. I mean, the outrage, I share you, I am outraged. 28 years in the United States Senate, working like crazy at Kyoto, in Rio, uh, all the way Paris. through to Paris. We <laughs> get the Paris Agreement. All of a sudden, we're ready to move. And what we knew we were doing in Paris was really sending a signal to the marketplace. Because you know as well as I do, we, we, we know we didn't leave Paris guaranteeing we we're going to have two degrees. Exactly. We set a goal. And the goal was to create the momentum to move in that direction. Donald Trump singularly has unleashed, you know, the, the countries that we corralled in Paris who were reluctant but came on board. Now they have an excuse mm -hmm. to say we don't have to do anything. Mm -hmm. So we had a struggle in Katowice on the, on, on, in the Poland on the, on the meeting of the UN there. And we likewise had a struggle in Madrid. Three countries made it difficult in Madrid. Australia, Brazil, and I regret to say the, the United States of America, my country. And I'm, I'm, I feel so angry at that after all the efforts we made. But on the optimist side, I see what states are doing. I see what cities are doing, mayors are doing. People all over America 
are still trying to meet the Paris standards. And we've done pretty well as a country without the leadership of the White House and the president. So, you know, it's, it's a, and I see people just yesterday, I met with some folks right here in Phoenix who are developing uh, uh, hydrogen trucks. And, and there are all kinds of exciting things happening out there. Battery storage gets better. I've seen some promising things there too. Uh, so I think technology can cut in here and help us. Uh, you know, we have to catch up now because we've lost three years fully with, with Trump. Uh, but I think there's a great opportunity. Human, human innovative capacities, creative capacity is, I think, limitless. And I now see huge amounts of money moving towards venture efforts to find a way to do negative emissions mm -hmm. technology or find a way, or Mark Benioff and the initiative to plant a trillion trees and all of these things. People are really seizing the initiative, and that gives me great hope. Yes, well, we, we agree with you. Um, a thorn in our side is the fact that advancing on climate change continues to be such a a confrontational issue across the aisle in the United States, as well as in Australia, not in the UK. Um, and are there any conditions that you can imagine under which the excitement of the technology, the economic opportunities, the vision of the future would finally overcome this bipartisan situation that we have in the United States? Yes, I think it could happen right now, this year in November 2020. And that's called voting. And, and what we're trying to do, as you know, we've started this entity called World War Zero, which is trying to marry the grass tops with the grass roots and change the conversation so people are not able to escape the reality that, that, that uh, there are national security issues at stake here. So we have top national security people talking about it. We have huge job opportunities. So we will have major corporate entities coming to the table talking about those jobs. And health, huge health benefits in moving to mm -hmm. clean the air, get rid of pollution. I mean, Health pollution. savings, in fact. Right. Climate change is caused by climate change. The climate crisis is caused by pollution. And years ago, we fought to take away pollution. That's what the movement was about, the Earth Day movement, the early environmental movement. Now we're, we're, we've become less focused on the reality that it is still pollution. The largest cause of children being hospitalized in the United States in the summertime is environmentally induced asthma. If we were to clean up the air, reduce the particulates, get the coal plants completely shut, deal with uh, automobile and tailpipe diesel, emissions. tailpipe emissions, mm -hmm. we will save ourselves. We, we currently spend $55 billion a year on those kids. So the savings, people mm -hmm. don't know these things yet. So what we're going to try to do is um, have conversations with tens of millions of Americans, literally because of social media. Micro-targeting will be trying to motivate people to realize you're not going to solve this if you don't make it a voting issue. And if we make it a voting issue, we're going to change what's happening. I have no doubt about it. Well, it's very exciting, this, uh, you know, beneficial or positive tsunami that could occur in the United States when people finally understand that, yes, climate change is the biggest threat that we have, but addressing climate change is the biggest opportunity, right? Biggest and, opportunity. And, and once we understand that it has nothing to do with your partisan politics, um, then there is no limit to what actually can be unleashed. So it's a, it's a very um, well, the minute, exciting... The minute a few of those 
reluctant participants today or non-participants see their friends losing their races, mm. you watch what happens. You're going to see a wild embrace of moving forward, providing it isn't a, a uh, exclusively a command and control structure that does it. I mean, a lot, you know, that's not the American way, but what we need is cooperation. I believe, and I believe this very, very sincerely, that we need to get on a war footing, literally. The challenge is that big. I was driving the other day, looking at all the cars, all these internal combustion engine cars, millions, hundreds all of, of millions which of people. belong in the museum. Correct. And, and, <laughs> and, and, and so we, but it's culturally. Yeah. You have to challenge and work the cultural shift for people to say, wow, I really will be okay if I'm driving an electric car. And then we've got to produce those cars fast enough, and we have to produce the infrastructure to charge those cars, and you know, you get in a cycle. So how do you do that rapidly when you have local community restraints mm -hmm. and state restraints and cross-boundary restraints within our country of state to state? And, and we can't litigate it. We don't have 10 and 15 years to litigate it. So I'm convinced we have to go. We need a president of the United States who will summon all the automakers to the White House. Sit them down and have the conversation. I know you're talking about 2050 and 2045. We have to do this sooner. How can we accelerate it? What do we have to do to make it more palatable for you from a competitive marketplace point of view? Is it a tax? Cut, is there an incentive we can give to lower income people to be able to afford electric? There are all kinds of things we can do, but none of that is... But it has to have very clear leadership, right? Very clear leadership. You've got to summon those people. You've got to have the bully pulpit being yes. used, the jawboning, we call it. You've got to work it. And I can think of presidents in my lifetime who knew how to do that. I mean, both Republican and Democrat alike. Uh, it's just not happening now. Uh, so, and there's a good book out by the name of, um, uh, by Paul Kennedy, Professor Paul Kennedy at Yale University. It's called Engineers of Victory. And it talks about how the Allies won World War II, what they had to do decision-wise to be able to do the things that were necessary to winning. And in the beginning of 1943, it wasn't clear that they would win. So those decisions were made. That's what we need now. How do you change the regulatory structure? How do you move fast enough? How do you create the incentives? What are we going to do? Because if we don't get 50% reduction by 2030 from where we are now, and 50% after that, and so forth, we're not going to make it by 2050 to hold the Earth's temperature where we need to be. And you know, again, because you were so much part of Paris, um, if we did everything we set out to do in all the plans of the 195, 96 countries that are set out, we still rise to 3.7 degrees. Correct. So Paris is not enough. It was the, it was supposed to be the kick the, in the rear yeah. end. It's the, the starting line. Correct. It's merely the starting line. It's the starting line. But nobody should be scared of this. This is the most incredible marketplace the world has ever had. There are four to five billion users today. There are a billion people without any electricity. We're going to go up to nine billion on the current curve of population growth. So you're going to have the largest marketplace people have ever known, trillions of dollars going into these things. That's jobs. Mm -hmm. Every one of these things. You build a, 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 you build a, a, you know, a, a windmill, 
Uh, and and you've got uh, the technician who's going to be taking care of it. You've got the people who are building fastest, the wings. Fastest-growing job in the United States well, is fastest wind growing turbine job, technician. I thought the fastest was solar technician. Well, Second I, fastest is okay, wind. Okay. But anyway, Either you're right way. there. You're I, right there. Right. But way. think about that. Fastest, we have something like mm -hmm. 300,000 jobs in that sector now. We have about, I don't know, 45,000 or so right now in the coal industry. So you balance those things and you say, what is our president doing? Say he's going to go grow coal, the dirtiest fuel in the world. So that's there's a lot of change that has to happen here. Well, interestingly enough, although he has been promising to bring coal back, there hasn't been a single new coal plant opened in the United States in the past no, five years. No, we've been closing years. them. Yes, closing them. them. Right. Um, now, the president kind of stands alone on this. <laughs> yes, very alone. <laughs> very alone in history as well. Yeah. Um, so, Secretary Kerry, you call, you, you call for this uh, World War Zero, uh, which is a huge transformation in the United States. But it does require political leadership. It does require political vision. Do you have a name of a person who would be able to do that? Well, I think they're, 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 any one of the candidates running for president on the Democratic side have all put out very detailed and capable plans. I am supporting Vice President Joe Biden because he's been in this fight uh, more than any of the others. Uh, he has accomplishments in it. In 1986, he put in one of the first pieces of legislation on climate change. And as vice president, he and President Obama were integrally involved in the work that I did as we led up to Paris, going to China. I negotiated with President Xi. We created a task force. Uh, president Obama came to Beijing. He and President Xi both announced star reductions, which began a process of people taking it seriously. And, and there was tremendous work, you and uh, Lawrence Tubiana and Lawrence Fabius and all these people who helped organize Paris, worked their hearts out to bring countries there, to travel around, to do the prep work. None of that has been taking place today. And, and Vice President Biden understands how you do that, mm -hmm. and he will attract the strongest uh, people to the table. He has the credibility, he has the leverage, and he can beat Trump. That's critical. All the polls have shown steadily, despite all the dirty attacks, the, the, the complete slime job they're trying to do, which they did on me when I ran in 04. You know, and we, we didn't answer it enough because we didn't have enough money back then operating under the campaign finance restrictions. Today, they don't have those restrictions. So there will be money uh, to fight for the truth. And I think Joe Biden is the one person who can really summon people to the table and help to make it happen. Well, you mentioned money. Um, I, I say this with a broken heart, or I ask this with a broken heart. Um, has money overtaken politics in the United States? Money has completely polluted our system. Uh, we have to get the big money out of the system. But the only way we're going to do that, you have to fight fire with fire with the goal of doing it. Mm. Um, you got to win. You've got to get enough people. We are a democracy. You've got to win a majority. You need 51%, actually 60, to get things done in the Senate. But uh, I think we can get there. I really believe that we can get there. 
So talk to me about the time between now and the end of the year, because the end of the year brings uh, pretty important deadlines. It is election in the United States. It's COP26, at which this is the first testing ground of the Paris Agreement, right? Because we decided, countries together decided that every five years under the Paris Agreement, they would come back to increase their ambition. I think we can already foresee that the United States will not increase its ambition. Under Going this, forward? Under this administration right no, now in COP26. So, so talk to me about what you would like to see happen over the next few months from here to the U.S. election and COP26, both of which are basically going to be back to back. It's a big deal. It's a huge moment because we all promised we're going to take stock and if we're not meeting what we need to meet, we're going to raise ambition. The raising of ambition will depend on the president in our country because you're not, I mean, if Australia can hide behind our president, if uh, India Brazil. or Saudi Arabia or other countries, Brazil, they, they will. So we have to take away that cover. Um, as you know, you're, we're not officially out of Paris until the day after the election. Exactly. And if we win that election, that will be, you know, whatever happens, if president out of spite pulls out anyway, we'll be back in it Yes. in two months. Boom. Yes. So people will at least know there's a future. Uh, the key here is uh, getting ahead of the curve on laying out that raising of ambition. And Europe mm. is frankly taking the lead right now. I'm, yes. very, I'm very pleased by that. Europe, is, you know, Franz Timmermans is a friend of both of ours, and he's committed to leading Europe uh, you know, under new leadership to try to tackle this. And I think we've all got to be deadly serious in how we're going to do it. But it's a win-win for Europe. If Europe does that, They'll be ahead of the curve on technology. They'll have credibility. They'll have respect. They'll be able to uh, really help uh, uh, to, to take this seriously. We're going to build a political movement, if we can, in this country to be as strong as possible to make certain that we are uh, That is the World War Zero movement, That's right? the World War Zero effort. Well, it's not just us. It's lots of people. I mean, the Earth Day Network will be working to turn out more people. We'll be working with them to make sure April of this year is an enormous turnout of Americans and people around the world to demand that adults do this. And you think of all these young kids who are striking and, and uh, demonstrating, and you know, all they're asking is for adults to be adults. Exactly. Do the job you were supposed to do. Yes. But those kids will not have a vote in a Congress or Parliament or in a boardroom between now and that 10-year mark. Hence, it is not their responsibility to change the course. You got it. It it's is our ours. responsibility. It's absolutely our responsibility to make this happen. So, you know, I, I'm, I, you and I and many people are dedicating uh, our lives right now to making sure we try to do that. I remember you coming to New York uh, to sign the Paris Agreement with your granddaughter on your knee. Yeah, it was funny. It was kind of an accident. My, my, my daughter came with my beautiful granddaughter, and for a moment, she, oh, Dad, hold, can you hold Isabel? I've got to go do something. So I'm holding Isabel, and suddenly somebody came up and said, you have to go out and sign. You know, I said, okay, and I walked out well, with I, her. Well, I would say those are one of the coincidences of history because... Uh, it's an the, iconic their, photo. It is totally, yes, definitely the most That's moving photo. photo of the signing of the Paris yeah, Agreement. It was very touching. I was touched by it. And after I signed, when we went back and my daughter had reappeared, Isabel said to my daughter, Mommy, Mommy, 
I know sign paper. <laughs> I know she thought she should be signing. It was very funny. Well, you were definitely signing for her and her yeah. uh, her generation. Yeah, no, very much so. But uh, this is doable. This is exciting. I mean, the jobs that can be created, the better health benefits, the national security that comes, the avoidance of spending trillions of dollars to clean up the mess that we will have to clean up from intensive hurricanes, storms, Absolutely. fires. We spent $265 billion to clean up after three storms, mm. Harvey, Maria, and Irma. Harvey dropped more water on Houston in five days than goes over Niagara Falls in a whole year. And Irma had the first measured sustained winds of 185 miles an hour for over 24 hours. Then that was unheard of until Dorian came along just this last year and beat it. So. 500-year, 1,000-year events are now happening with greater frequency, and we're seeing things where what we call the feedback loops are coming at us bigger and faster. Methane now being released in the atmosphere because you have the, the thawing of the permafrost in Alaska and Siberia and elsewhere, so that methane is 20 times more damaging than carbon dioxide, mm -hmm. so than CO2, and the result is... Uh, if these feedback loops take us to a multiple tipping points, uh, there really is a question whether you can bring back the species, whether you can bring back the ocean. I mean, how long and what is it going to take to do it? So, At what point are we over that threshold, right? Well, we don't know for we sure. We don't know. And, that, and when you don't know, you certainly have a human responsibility to not toy with God's work. I mean, mm -hmm. we don't know the outcomes of mm -hmm. some of these things. So, you know, we buy insurance against fires. We do all kinds of things to prevent fires from happening. We buy insurance for health. We try to stay healthy. We, we uh, you know, buy insurance on our uh, 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 homes and cars and so forth. We're not buying insurance for earth. Exactly. For life, for day-to-day -day life. Mm -hmm. And I find that that's where the outrage comes. I yes. mean, you just get so Truly. angry at, at the Neanderthal reaction that just puts their head in the sand and... You know, i got news for you. That sand's getting hotter, too. Yes, exactly. <laughs> It's going to be bad. And just one last word from you uh, about the outrage that we see on the streets on the part of young people, your, your message for young people. Keep, keep on fighting. Every major change I've seen in my lifetime, young people have been in the vanguard of making it happen. The civil rights movement in the 1960s, when we all became active, the environment movement, the women's movement, the peace movement, Every one of them, young folks, went to work. Kids up in New Hampshire, we called them the peanut butter and jelly brigade, 20 kids to an <laughs> apartment. And they were out there knocking on doors and talking to people. And lo and behold, an unknown senator from Minnesota, Gene McCarthy, got 44% of the vote. And that was enough to tell Lyndon Johnson, you can't run again. It changed history. Every time, we, I mean, I, we were at college and we became involved in the Mississippi voter registration drive. And, and that helped break the back of, of, you know, authorized discrimination in America, Jim Crow. We, we, we broke that and have moved. So Voting Rights Act, uh, Civil Rights Act, these things came about because young people took their conscience and their values and their 
optimism and their vision to the streets. And that's what we have to do. I'm, I'm more and more militant now. I'm coming full circle. Yes. Right back to where I was. <laughs> so am I. I'm getting more and more militant. Being the daughter of a revolutionary, I am so pro-revolution at yeah. this point. Secretary Kerry, thank you so much. Thank you, thank you very much for, for taking the time and always a pleasure to, uh, to be with you and to listen to you. Thank you. So what an honour to have Secretary Kerry on this podcast and what an amazing interview and conversation with someone who has been such a leader for such a long time. Um, what do you, Paul, what do you leave that with? Well, I mean, <laughs> I'm kind of horrified that uh, the comments I was making at the start appear to have been uh, underscored. What is it he said? There are no campaign finance restrictions. Money has completely polluted our system. We have to get the big money out of the system. Um, I thought that that was frightening, but incredibly important for us all to hear. Uh, I also noticed he, he called climate change a national security issue. I think that's exactly the right attitude. Talked about needing to get on a war footing. But I think probably the thing that kind of broke my heart, actually, was saying that... Uh, that uh, all the kids are asking is for adults to be adults and that we should have to demand that the adults do this. And uh, I kind of feel stupid, you know, when such a distinguished global political leader is requiring adults to behave like adults. It's just a bit... It's a bit in your face, as they say. Yeah, and, and, and the other point that I took from that in a similar vein which I thought was actually an interesting presage to to where much of this might go in the future, is he talked about the fact that, you know, how stunning it is to him that grown adults can sit there and ignore clear science and actually that he wishes there was a way to hold them criminally accountable for the loss of life, which they are facilitating. Criminally liable, that's what he said, and that's a, that's a powerful Incredibly phrase. Incredibly powerful. And, I mean, that's not messing around. That's, that's a kind of precursor to where we might well get with some of this stuff before too very long. And, um, you know, that's, that's a different world, obviously, but that really struck me that he went there so strongly on that issue. Christiana, how was it for you to sit with him? Well, it's always um, it's always inspiring to see someone who sees the issues so clearly and also so deeply at the same time. Uh, and the 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 one piece that I think, for me anyway, has been always consistent in his arguments, and he brought it up here again, is the power of the market. He has been speaking about the power of the market, of this new clean economy, the profits that will be made, the jobs that will be created. He has been on that for years. And it's actually a little bit ironic, isn't it? It's a little bit ironic that someone who... um, who is, and and I know, Tom, you said, you know, you don't like, the, or, or Paul, you said you don't like the left and right, and I, I would agree. But um, if you'll humor me for a second, it's very interesting that someone who's on the left side yeah. is actually arguing from a market signals and market growth, market opportunity, and that his conundrum is that those sitting on the right yeah. don't see that market opportunity. That's actually quite interesting. And and it's been the case for years. For years, he has been beating on this drum of the size of the market, the number of jobs. And it's almost like, you know, there's deaf ears on the other side. Well, I mean, you're absolutely uh, right, Christiana. But I mean, in, in a way, there are, there are actually 
two markets we're kind of talking about. There's a there's a market in 2030 or 2050, uh, which is you know fossil fuel based with lots of coal and lots of terrible climate change, and and that's a real possibility. And there's a market that has decarbonized and has a lot of jobs and you know essentially energy from the sun and from the wind, and that's possible as well. And I think it's this uh, contest for the heart of the market, you know. The market is, is in a sense, this is what we're beginning to realize. It, it can have different outcomes. It's not, uh, you know, it, it is no fate but what we make. Well, let me push back on that, Paul, because um, I think one of the points that um, Secretary Kerry has been making for many years and with which I really enthusiastically agree because it sits very close to my heart is the fact that we still have 800 million people around the earth that do not have access to electricity. That is a latent market. And the fossil fuel industry cannot meet that need. It is only if you go to decentralized renewable energy that doesn't need long line extensions and expensive grid and distribution and transport of energy, et cetera, et cetera. Only if you go to completely decentralized energy generation and use can you actually meet that market. So A, that is a market that is there and can be met by renewable energy, Um, but also There is a deep morality issue in there. How is it possible that we adults, to come back to our, you know, previous conversation, how is it possible that we adults in the year 2020 sit back and accept the absolutely horrifying fact that there are 800 million people who do not have electricity? The reason why that is so terrible is because getting out of poverty starts with electricity. And that is the very, very basis of the economic ladder that allows people to come out of extreme poverty. So, you know, there is a moral issue here. There is an injustice that can be set right. And it aligns with very strong market signals and a market opportunity. So, you know, it's, it's, it's more than just a comparison between two markets that will do the same thing. Yes, there are two markets. Yes, there are two economies. But the consequences and the reach of, the, of yeah. each of them are very different. Um, I, I think that's a great point. And I think the, you know, and, and he, of course, he talked about their in response to your question, the corporate capture of the political system that's made much of this impossible as it's captured the Republican Party and kind of turned it against the ability to embrace this innovation for the future. I mean, one other thing that we don't want to get into too much now that I thought was really interesting was, um, you know, he makes the point that you can't trust Trump. And, you know, he makes it from experience. And we would obviously, you know, all um, agree with that. Wait, wait, wait. Should we take a vote on that one, Tom? <laughs> I, I, think, I think we should ask Clay to come in on that one. Clay? Yes. Clay, as a good U.S. citizen, how are you feeling? Yeah, you're the only U.S. citizen on this whole podcast. So maybe you should say something here. That's true. That's true. Uh, so is the question, how do I feel? right now about Trump? The question, Clay, is do you trust Trump? That's the question. No. (laughs) I say we vote on this. I'm ready ready to vote. Yes, yes, we're voting. You're the only one who gets a vote in the election. You're the only one who gets a vote. Yep, Michigan Michigan presidential primaries March 10th and general elections November 3rd. I'm ready to vote. 
that's a nice feeling. Okay. <laughs> but anyway, Tom, you were saying something before. No, I was just going to finish that off and sort of say, well, you know, and it's interesting that some parts of the climate movement and the environmental movement have begun to engage with Trump. And the issue that they've brought, that they've engaged with him on or appear to have engaged with him on is this idea of a trillion trees that, you know, we can, we can engage in some degree of climate repair by massive land restoration. And it's, uh, again, this is, we don't have the time to get into this now, but I think we should, we should focus on it for a future podcast. It's a really interesting, specific and general strategic question around, is that a smart idea? to do that. Clearly, he's using it for his own political ends. um, And you can't trust him. At the same time, if there is a possibility that by engaging him, you might be able to plant more trees or do some good in the world. Where's the line? How do you sort of like make that kind of decision? Because it's 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 tough to know when dealing with someone like him, right? Oh, no, 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 no. (laughs) I have a very clear line on that one. A very clear line on that one. Absolutely, we have to plant at least a trillion trees. It's not, however, in substitution for emission reduction. It has to be a complement to emission reduction. If anyone plants trees and says, I am absorbing carbon out of the air and putting it back where it belongs in the soil, and therefore I don't have to do anything about my emissions, that person should also be criminally liable. Because that is not the point. The point is we have to do both. We have to both reduce our emissions and capture carbon out of the air and put it back in the soil. So my concern with his all of a sudden, you know, love of trees is the greenwash, you know? Oh, yeah, I'm doing something on climate change because I'm planting trillion trees uh, in the White House. No, I'm sorry. That just doesn't cut it. In case you wanted to know my opinion. <laughs> no, no, I mean, what we, what we experienced there, Christiana, not only was your, your, was your opinion with passion, uh, you deployed your eyebrows, which kind of lift up and point in a really frightening way. And, and that is how 190 countries all came to agree to. But, you know, I'm going to use my serious voice for half a second. And uh, I've been reading this guy, uh, Rana Dasgupta, a uh, very interesting thinker. And this is a little, a little word about why Trump is successful. You know, what, what Descupta says is that the, you know, planetary wealth, the distribution of planetary wealth and resources is now largely uncontested by any political mechanism. And, and a lot of people are hurting. And Trump spoke to them. And he said, look, I see the factories are shut and I see, you know, all these problems and I'm going to fix them for you. And I'm going to I'm going to have a a battle with the Chinese and sort this out. And I'm going to put up a big wall so no one can get in. And it's not going to work, but people needed to hear something, and he he spoke sure. to them. But but Christiana, just to go back specifically to the question on the trees, I mean, I'd be very interested in your answer. I have had three people send me WhatsApp messages because they have been invited to go to a roundtable at the White House with President Trump to talk about his trillion tree plan and inquiring as to whether I thought that they should go because they were wrestling with this issue of they know it's greenwash, should he engage? I would be really interested to know how you would answer them. Here's how I would answer. Picture a bathtub. Not how I thought you'd start, but okay. Well, there you are. I Sometimes <laughs> I surprise you. Picture a bathtub. Now, we have been filling that bathtub, in particular over the past 50 years, 
not with water, but with CO2, because the bathtub here represents the carbon budget in the atmosphere. We have been filling and filling and filling. We have only a tiny little bit before we get to the edge of that bathtub, and then the, one, the water will run over uncontrollably, and we cannot manage that disaster. So what we have to do with that bathtub is A, shut the faucet, and stop putting as much CO2 into the atmosphere. Also, because we cannot shut it quickly enough, we also have to drain from the bottom. Now, anyone who says, I'm going to drain, but I'm still going to leave the faucet open, is not serious. We have to do both. We have to drain out of the bottom and we have to shut the faucet. If the conversation with him is, how are we both going to drain and shut the faucet? That is a good conversation. Half of that conversation is not valid. All right, you know who you are. People who <laughs> ask me, you have clear advice from Cristiano Figueres. <laughs> Don't go for half a conversation. That's the story. <laughs> don't, don't go for half a bathtub. Yeah. Or go to the room with a bathtub. I don't like the sound of yeah, half a bathtub. Go with a bathtub and bring it to explain the point. I think that would be great. And send us pictures. Yeah. There you go. Cool. All right. Well, this has been <laughs> okay. a really fun episode, Christiana. It's so nice to have you back. Um, we uh, Before we go, I have to make the point that our book is coming out on Tuesday. Yay! It kind of feels like people listening to this podcast probably know that by now. I'm sorry we've talked about it so much. But hopefully you're as excited as we are. On Tuesday, Christiana and I will be at the New York Public Library for the launch event. And then thereafter, in different events in New York and DC, and then the following week in London and around the UK, all details can be found on globaloptimism.com. And then Australia after that. So there are tickets. Many of them are free. Sometimes you just have to register. So please do go there. And all the links are also up on globaloptimism.com for places where you can buy the book. You can make a pre-order purchase in any country. Um, and all proceeds from the pre-order period go to planting trees with the Greenbelt Movement in Africa. So you have just a couple of days to get pre-orders in. Christiana? I was on. going to say planting trees, but also reducing emissions. We can't just plant trees. <laughs> oh, no, we're not making the situation worse, are we? <laughs> Is it all right just to plant trees, Christiana? No, Paul Dickinson, it is not. It is a wonderful thing to do so. And, and, and no surprise, in our book, we have plenty of suggestions and examples of what you can do. As part of a package in which we're creating the future. Exactly. <laughs> All right, friends, nice to see you. Thanks for joining us, everyone. See you next week. Nice to see you. See you next week. Bye-bye. Talk to you then. So there you go. Another episode of Outrage and Optimism. This is the last week for pre-orders for Tom and Christiana's new book, The Future We Choose. Proceeds are going to the Green Belt Movement, an incredible tree planting and sustainability effort in Africa by our friend Wanjira Matai. You can go to globaloptimism.com to pre-order the book right now. Okay, without further ado, Outrage and Optimism is a production of Global Optimism and is produced by Clay Carnell. I'd like to thank Callum Grieve, Pete Kluttenbrock, Chloe Revel, Marina Mancilla, Zoe Sherlock-Antich, Nigel Topping, and Michael Northrup. We have a lot of really exciting content that we're going to be posting over the next couple weeks, and you can find it on social media at Global Optimism on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Next Friday, Tom and Christiana will be having a live conversation with three-time Pulitzer Prize winner and New York Times columnist Tom Friedman. Hit subscribe so you don't miss it. See you next week.